We had a great Sunday school class this morning. Uh, if you were here, we do these welcome classes. This is the only second one we've done. And it is so fun to hear the stories uh, or just from the folks who are leading ministries in the church. If you haven't made those, I just encourage you. Uh, I'm emotionally worn out already just hearing stories that I've already heard. Uh, so I'd encourage you. I think we've got two weeks left of that starting at 930 Let me pray. Father, uh, we just recognize that it's your spirit that gives life, that opens the eyes of our heart to see you, Lord, to see truth, to embrace it. And that, Father, you're the God of life, and that's really your call in the gospel. You invite us back into a living, loving relationship with yourself through your son, Jesus. And, Father, we ask simply that you'd help us to see him more fully this morning, that as we look at some scripture together, you would be convicting us, you'd be you'd be opening our eyes, Lord, to see Him and know what it means to know You and to be loved by You and to love You in return, Lord Jesus. Amen. This is the second in an on-the-road series, on the road from the passage in Luke 24 when the disciples, two of the disciples, were walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus and while doing so, a stranger approached them and asked them what they were talking about and... The stranger ends up being Jesus, and Jesus, the text says, began with Moses and the prophets and showed them himself in the Old Testament scriptures. He told them, you should have known that these things would happen to me because it was all recorded ahead of time. It was in the scriptures, you're dull, you're slow of heart to believe all that was written about me. And so we're sort of joining them on that road, and probably more broadly because we're looking at some texts I assume Jesus probably didn't cover texts that aren't specific to his incarnation or crucifixion or resurrection, perhaps some of the texts he would have gone over that day. But the hope is that these shadows or these types are road signs for us that allow us to see Christ more fully. As Christians, we believe that not only does Jesus save us, but that it's knowing him that's life. And the first and great commandment is that we love our God. Well, Jesus is our God, and so we can't love the person we don't know. So hopefully, at the end of the day, it's not so much about text. It's not so much about theology, per se. It's about knowing Christ more fully. Uh, When Kathy and I were newly married, this is a long time ago, a long time ago, uh, contemporary Christian music was still relatively new, thinking of Mark Ettinger. And one of the songs we heard and really loved in those early days of our marriage had uh, some text, some lyric that go like this. This is part of the song. And this is reflecting back on the creation accounts, reflecting back on Genesis 1 and 2. So the song says in part, Unashamed and naked in a garden that has never seen the rain, rulers of a kingdom full of joy, never marred by any pain. The morning all around them seems to celebrate the life they've just begun, and in the majesty of innocence, the king and queen come walking in the sun. But the master of deception now begins with his dissection of the word, and with all his craft and subtlety, the serpent twists the simple truths they'd heard, while hanging in the balance is a world that has been placed at their command 
and all their unborn children die as both of them bow down to Satan's hand. Isn't that a graphic portrayal of both creation and the fall? And listen to that phrase again. All their unborn children die as both of them bow down to Satan's hand. That's from a song by Don Francisco called Adam, Where Are You? You know that ever since Adam and Eve, you know that every one of their generations, their descendants is born with an absolutely 100% fatal disease, that every one of their descendants dies. We have a death gene, if you will. We are born, their descendants, God said to them, if you eat from that tree, you'll die. And they did. And ever since, just as he's got their unborn children, not born yet, weren't really there as ourselves, as our full-born, full-grown-up selves, but were present in them in that they were our first parents. And isn't this an interesting thought that every person in this room and every person on the earth we all trace our lineage back to this one source. Isn't this interesting? It doesn't matter what country you hail from now, what skin color you have, what eye shape you have. Scripture is absolutely clear that we have one blood, and this was it. And so Francisco's got it right. When Adam and Eve sinned, all their unborn children died with them. And ever since then, while it's a joyous thing with every generation, every baby that's born, it's a great thing, isn't it? It's life. We're glad for that. But when parents reproduce, parents who are going to die reproduce, they reproduce children who are going to die. And Adam and Eve reproduced who and what they were, and they reproduced sinners with a Gene disposed to sin, and sin always brings death. And that's our heritage. Our heritage from Adam is 100%, absolutely, you and I share not only his humanity, not only the image of God, which God clearly put in Adam and Eve and our first parents, but now we share his image as someone who's fallen and given to death. And that's our heritage also from Adam, our first father. If you and I were going to gain freedom from death, if you and I could move from death to life, friends, we would actually need a new parent. We would need a new source of life. If Adam is the only father we have, that is, if our life only traces its lineage back to Adam, all we can do at the end of the day is die. That's all He can give us. His fallen humanity and death. If you and I are going to have any hope of life that doesn't end, of real life, of spiritual life, then we will need a new DNA. We'll need a new source of life. We'll need a new personal genesis. And we'll need some new version of Adam. We'll need some new federal head by which we could gain life or we have no chance. Because all Adam can give us is death. 100% absolutely guaranteed. You know, we live in a country and we live in a time in history. There's so many things that we can do that seem impossible. You know, you, you think of our software and computers and what we can do in science and medicine. But you know, there's another very basic level at which 
your origin determines your destiny. You can have all the positive mental attitude you want. You can have corrective surgeries. You can have medical treatments. You can stay fit. You can be healthy and well. And at the end of the day, you're still going to die. And we are on a death march from cradle to the grave. We're going to die. That's what we've got from Adam. Origin is destiny. You know, if you breed cats, you will always get cats, won't you? You're not going to get anything but cats. And if you breed dogs, you're always going to get dogs because it's a scriptural truth. We reproduce what we are. It cannot be otherwise. And Adam and Eve's descendants are and have what Adam and Eve were and had. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis 5. You know, the creation account. And by the way, we've been over this, these texts a couple times in the last month, so there's much that I won't review here this morning. When we get through the creation account in the fall, we get to Genesis 5. And Genesis 5.1 starts there with an important genealogy. And Genesis is sort of built on a foundation of genealogies, which to most of us sound boring, but they're, they're key in the book of Genesis. So we get to this first genealogy, and we read this in Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam, the descendants, the successive descendants of Adam. In the day when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. There's the image of God in man, that first creation. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he had become the father of Seth, were 800 years. He had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And he died. You know what you read as you go through this genealogy? After every generation, you know, the same words are repeated sickeningly, repeatedly. And he died. And he died. Genesis 5.1 shows us the transition. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. They were given life. There was no death there. But once they fell, when they reproduced, the text is clear, they reproduced in their own fallen image. And that means death. So Adam is our dad, is our physical dad, the one whom we all trace our lineage to, we're like him. We're, we're part of his successive generations. If we kept writing this list down, you and I would be on there someplace too. And you know what it will say at the end of our story? And he died. And she died. And they died. Adam's created in God's image, but Adam's son Seth, and every generation since, is in Adam's fallen, distorted image, the one subject to sin and death. So Adam reproduces us in his image. Subtle change, but very important in that genealogy. Paul talks about this too, theologically, in Romans 5.12. says there, uh, As through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. Death spread to all men because all sin. You know, there's a, a, a level at which if you tell people when you're born, you're born sinful and alienated from God, 
the immediate response is that's unfair. What do you mean? I, I haven't sinned. And I wasn't there when he sinned. So why would you accuse me? And the thought goes something like this. The truth is we were there. In a sense, right? We were in Adam and Eve's DNA. We were in them. You and I physically trace our lineage to them. This isn't metaphorical. This isn't metaphysical. This is real. Your DNA, it goes back to Adam and Eve. So does mine. You know, you go through Genesis and, and Adam and Eve, their lineage spreads out. And then what happens in Genesis 6? All their descendants but Noah and his wife and their children are cut off. So that means we all share Adam's and then all of us again, we go back to Noah and his wife. Our DNA is physically from them. It's real. This isn't metaphysical. It's not spiritual. It's real. We're tied to them. And in that sense, we were in them when they sinned. We were part of them. You can look in Hebrews. It makes the same point to show why Jesus' priesthood is greater than the priesthood that was part of the Old Testament law. And I won't go into that, but Scripture's clear. We were in Adam when he sinned. So not only do we get death because Adam's our father, but we were part of him. We were part of his act of defiance against God in the moment, in his DNA, if you will. You know, we are sitting in a comfortable gym in the middle of the United States. And <clears throat> for most of us, not minimizing abuse or difficulties in life, but compared to most of the world, we have it pretty good here, don't we? Do you know why that is? It's because of who you were born to. Why did I get to grow up comfortably middle class, uh, pretty successful growing up? You know, no huge valleys or mountains to overcome. Why is that? It's because I was born to my dad. It's what I got from my father. You know, because he was middle class. And, and why was he? Well, because his dad was. And, and this isn't minimizing work by which we improve our lot in life. Not saying anything like that. Uh, you get into 1 Corinthians and Paul asks rhetorically the, the Corinthians who are very proud. He says, by the way, what do you have that you weren't given? What do you have that you weren't given? So why would you boast about yourself when you recognize that everything you have is because it was given to you? Well, friends, what we have is because of who we were born to. So if I'm born in another part of the world at another time to other parents, my experience is very, very different. My experience in life is tied to who I come from. When we were little and we were, or when we were little, when my girls were little and we would talk to them about things like this, our phrase to help them come to grips with this was, the children get what the Father has. The children get what the Father has. Is that fair? If your father is rich and wealthy and healthy and you come from that father and my father is poor and medically unfit and I come from him is that fair you know at some point it's not about fair anymore is it it's just about who do I come from because my origin is my destiny my origin determines what my life is like big big picture we can have variations on that theme within there but it's who I come from that determines so much of what goes on in my life we reproduce what we are it can't be any other way. We reproduce what we are. If you visit our house sometime, you'll meet a large furry dog named Jordy. And Jordy's an Airedale. 
you know, God help me, it's the only purebred dog we've ever bought. And I bought it to please my wife, and I did. Uh, you know, when we got Jordy, she's like, seriously, this big. You know, she's 85 pounds today. She's about this big when we brought her home. Cutest little thing, and black and brown, and big button nose. And she starts growing up, and it's good, and she's growing fast, and great disposition, great dog, you know. And But we notice as she's getting bigger, she seems to scratch a lot. And it gets so bad that literally she is tearing the fur and the skin off her body. She's scratching so violently, so frequently. And so we start doing the things, Dan, that I used to laugh at people for, the way they would treat their pets. So we take our Geordie. There's no children at home. Jessica says Geordie is the favorite child of the Halpin family. So we take Jordy to the doctor, to the vet, you know, what's going on. And the vet tests her. We pay for allergy testing. I'm sorry, it's embarrassing to even admit this, but we did. And so the question isn't, what is Jordy allergic to? The question is, what is she not allergic to? Everything we feed her, she's allergic to. The grass in our yard, she's allergic to. Just about anything she could be allergic to, she's allergic to. So we're scratching our head. We've paid what is to us a large sum of money for a purebred, papered Airedale. So we call our breeder. And this breeder, great person, Christian, fine person. Don't mean to <laughs> demean them personally in any way. Hey, uh, Jordy, we found out she's got all these allergies. And the breeder says, yeah, man, her mom does too. I give her cold compresses. We give her medications. And like, wow, really? Uh, have you ever read your Bible? Do, do, do you know there's a law that you reproduce what you are? Why would you breed a dog with allergies? Did, you, did that cross your mind? Because a dog with allergies is going to produce dogs with allergies. Because we reproduce what we are. And friends, we are the descendants of Adam. And Adam reproduced what he was. And Adam was fallen version of the image of God, subject to death. And we get what our dad got. And that means Adam, with the humanity he gives us, he gives us death. Because it's all he can give us. Because that's what he had. So from our first father, we get death, and there's absolutely no way around it. If we're going to have life, guys, we've got to have a new start. We have to have a rebirth, don't we? If, if we're going to live forever, if death isn't going to be the end of our story, and he died, and she died, and they died, then we're going to have to have a new beginning because all Adam can give us all we can get from our head, from our real physical father, at the end of the day is death. So if we're going to have life that doesn't end, we've got to have a new spiritual head, don't we? We're going to have to have a rebirth, an infusion of new life, uncontaminated by Adam's death gene, aren't we? 1 Corinthians 15.50, Paul says, I say this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. He's telling you and I today, as we are, 
sons and daughters of Adam, we can't get into God's kingdom and we're subject to death. We're perishable. John 3, 3, that famous conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus. Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again or you cannot see the kingdom of God. So if there's going to be any change in our status, there has to be a new genesis and that means there has to be a new Adam. We need some new version of Adam or all we've got is death because that's all Adam can give us. Now Paul says in Romans 5.14 that Adam is a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type of him who is to come. Paul's using theological language there. When we say something's a type, we just mean it's a picture. It's a shadow. So in the Bible, if there's a type, there's an anti-type. The type is the shadow of the reality, the, the shadow of the substance. So Paul says, Adam, he's a picture. He's a road sign to another Adam. To a final Adam, he'll say later in 1 Corinthians 15. We are meant, this isn't hyperbola, this isn't spiritualizing text. Paul says, when we read about Adam in Genesis, we are meant to see the second final Adam that we know is the person of Jesus Christ. Adam was always meant to be a road sign to another Adam who would give us life. If, you're, if you look at uh, Luke's genealogy in Luke chapter 3, you'll see that Luke traces Jesus' lineage back to Abraham, and that would be his Jewish lineage. But then he goes beyond Abraham all the way back to Adam. Because Luke wants us to see that Jesus is a direct descendant of Adam. Now the upside, of course, is that Jesus gets his humanity through his mother, Mary. And that means that in an important way, Adam is not Jesus' father. Now he shares Adam's humanity through Mary, that's quite clear. But Jesus' father isn't Adam, it's God. This means that Jesus, while He shares our humanity, does not share our death gene. That means this one can possibly give us life. This new Adam would have the ability to give us life, perhaps. He doesn't share the first Adam's propensity to death. I just want to run through a few of the ways in which Adam in Genesis is meant to show us Christ. So that when you read Genesis in the future, you see past that first Adam and say, I get it, this is supposed to point the way to Christ, to Adam's descendant and our Savior, Jesus Himself. Adam and Eve uh, had a short term, it appears, in Eden, didn't they? They're in the perfect place. So the world's perfect, but they're in an even more perfect place in the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, there's no sin, there's no death. There's everything good to eat. They're healthy, they're fit. They're the best version of humanity possible in the best place possible. Everything is fair game. And God says there's just one thing you can't do. You can't eat the fruit from that one tree. So that one thing aside, everything you do is, is good. You can't do bad. You can't fail any tests. There's just one thing one test, you can't eat the fruit from that tree. Now, of course, we know the tempter comes along 
He appeals to Eve. See the fruit. Man, it's beautiful. It would taste great. And it would make you really wise like God. And the way the tempter says it too, it's clear that it's insinuating, you know, that God, I don't think he has your best in mind. I think he's holding something back. There's this insinuation. But remember, in this test, Adam and Eve, they have the easiest test possible. There's only one way to fail. You'd have to almost work at this, wouldn't you? Because everything else is fair game. So it'd be the easiest test or temptation possible, and they fail the test. And they die, and in Don Francisco's words, all their unborn children die in that moment too. So when they face their temptation, they fail. Adam fails. But Jesus has a temptation too, doesn't he? You know, this isn't happenstance. You know, when you read your New Testament, you say, gosh, that sounds just like Genesis. There's a reason for that, isn't there? That's intentional. So if you read Luke 4 or Matthew 4, we know that the Spirit of God drives Jesus where? Not into a garden. Into a desert, into a dry desert wilderness. Adam and Eve, they were probably hydrated. They'd eaten all their fruits and vegetables, you know. They're probably not even hungry when that tree is presented to them. But Jesus, 40 days in a dry, barren wilderness, eating absolutely nothing. And that's when he faces his temptation. And the tempter that was there with our first father, Adam, he's there again. Imagine that. And he does the same thing, doesn't he? First, he insinuates that Jesus may not be who he thinks he is. So Jesus is hungry, he's tired, he's worn out. This is the toughest of temptations, not the easiest. And the tempter says, if you are the Son of God, you know, if means you don't look very godly. I'm not seeing it. And I'll bet you have doubts yourself right now. I know some have said that's true of you, but I'm not sure. If you're the Son of God, you know, you could just put that doubt to rest. You could just... Speak to that stone and turn it into bread and you could eat because I know you're hungry and certainly eating's okay. That'd be fine. Jesus, the worst possible temptation. He's hungry. Satan's jabbing him in the areas where he might be vulnerable. And so you know, this is another lesson for another day, how Jesus responds to temptation. He quotes God's word. God has said, we don't live by bread alone, but by God's words. So Satan's okay on that too, though, isn't he? So he says, okay, well, I know the Bible too. And so he says, you know, well, if you really are God's son, God has said that he won't allow harm to come to his son, that he'll give his angels charge. So why don't you just settle all the doubts here from the temple height, way, way up there. Why don't you just cast yourself down? When those angels catch you, you'll be relieved. So will I. We know you're God the son. And just satisfy us with this. And, of course, Jesus says we don't put the Lord our God to the test. And last, and, and maybe, maybe toughest, maybe, he says, hey, you know what? If you'll bow down before me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. Now, Satan says they belong to me. Because when Adam and Eve bowed to Satan, when they obeyed him, they gave the rule of this world to him. He sort of became the governor of the world. And so Satan says, they're mine, they're my kingdoms, and I'll, I'll give them to you if you'll just bow down and worship. Now, he knows they ultimately rightfully belong to Jesus. And Jesus has got a hard road ahead of him. And so Satan says, why don't you just make it easy? 
just shortchange this whole thing. You bow down and worship. Now you get them right now. Nothing else for you to do. And Jesus says, no thanks. We'll worship the Lord our God and Him only. And it says in Luke's Gospel, I believe, Satan leaves, but it's just for another opportune time. You see, Adam faced temptation in the garden. Jesus faced temptation too. Adam failed in the easiest of tests. Jesus succeeds in the worst of tests. When we read the temptation in Genesis, we're meant to think of Jesus passing the test in Matthew and in Luke. You remember that in the creation account, God said in Genesis 1, when I create man, I'll create a male and female. My image in humanity will be male and female. And then we got to Genesis 2 and it's day 6 and Adam's created but not Eve yet. And God says it's not good for the man to be alone. God always intended Eve, didn't he? That Adam would have this complementary helper. This, this one that would be like him but different, who would fulfill him. And so, Eve was no accident. She wasn't sort of an afterthought for God. We know from chapter 1, male and female. We know from chapter 2, I'm not done with just Adam, that Adam was meant to have Eve. And when you read a passage like Ephesians 5, you know that Jesus was always intended to have his version of Eve, his bride, the church. There's lots of passages we could go to. I'll just briefly highlight some phrases from Ephesians 5. This is a text talking about marriage, husbands and wives. And in the context of that, Paul brings up the whole thing about Christ and the church. So he says, the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, no spot or wrinkle, holy and blameless. His spouse, his complementary other, would be just like him, morally. That's why a man leaves his father and mother, and the two become one flesh. The mystery is great, Paul says, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. When we see Adam and Eve in Genesis, and by the way, this isn't spiritualizing the text. You know, it's possible, and in history and times past, People would read an Old Testament text and it had only a spiritual understanding or an allegorical meaning. We always take the text in its nearest context. But God has more to say than just what He was speaking to in that time. We know by the time we get to the New Testament, there's more at work here. Because Paul and the other New Testament writers, they take us back into these texts and they say, this is what God was up to. So as Christians today, when we're back in those texts in Genesis, we're meant to see Christ. We're meant to see the church in Eve. This isn't spiritualizing Scripture. Now, in Genesis 2, when God wants to bring Eve to Adam, how, how does He go about that? How is Eve produced? Remember Genesis 2, 7, God scrapes dust together and He forms Adam and then He breathes into this dusty man, this reddish man, and He comes alive. But that's not how Eve gets her start, is it? So God shows Adam, by the way, you need a helper and there's none available. So the text says he lays Adam down in a deep sleep. And then it says that God takes a rib from his side. He wounds Adam in the side, doesn't he? And he takes a rib. I wonder if Adam had a scar there. I wonder what that surgery looked like. Do you think Adam had a scar after this? Might. A reminder. 
So God takes the rib from Adam and fashions Eve from Adam's rib. There's a joke about that that we won't go into this morning. But we know that Eve comes from Adam. He's in a deep sleep. God wounds his side, takes out a rib, and that's where Eve comes from. And how's the church born? You can read this in John 19. So, John 19 tells us that a soldier went up to Jesus after he died. Jesus has already given his spirit back to God. And it says the Roman soldier went up with his spear and he pierced Jesus in the side. Now, John tells us that blood and water came out because he wants us to understand the blood had started to separate serum from red blood cells and blood and water come out of Jesus' side. He's dead. Not maybe, he's really dead. But you know, blood and water is also what you have at birth, isn't it? Birth is really messy, isn't it? There's blood and there's water. And just as Adam in Genesis was laid down by God in this deep sleep, his side wounded, and Eve brought out of his side, Jesus' death on the cross, his blood flowing out of that wounded side, that blood is the birth of the church. His wound in the side is our origin. That blood that comes out and covers our sin, that is the birth of the church. We get our origin as members of Eve, Jesus' complementary other, in His bride, the church, through Jesus being laid down in the sleep of death, taken out of His wounded, bloody side. That's our origin. Just like Eve. When we read about Adam and Eve now as Christians with all of the Bible, we're meant to see the other Adam and the other Eve. And just as Adam is laid down in a deep sleep, wounded, and that's Eve's genesis, our genesis is in Jesus' sleep of death, His wounded side, His blood, our origin. Remember too, Adam and Eve were commanded by God to be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth and rule it and, and subdue it. Do you think Jesus is meant to be fruitful and multiplies the second Adam? Think about this. This isn't, uh, this is spiritual. Think about this though this way. Um, the church is the bride of Christ. We're his complementary other. When the church shares the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone whose only father is Adam, when they believe, what happens? They're born again. That's spiritual reproduction. When Christians, members of the body of Christ, Jesus' bride, when they share Jesus' life by the gospel, and people believe that is spiritual reproduction. Jesus and His bride by the Spirit bringing about new life on the earth, giving people a new genesis, a new spiritual head, a new source, a new beginning, life that won't end now in death. So, Jesus is reproducing Himself spiritually. This is just a great reason to be sharing the gospel with those around us. Because you get to be a part of the spiritual reproduction that God's always meant for His Son. That's exciting. You know, for a husband and wife to reproduce an eternal soul, 
that's, that is uh, mind-blowing to me. I still I can't get over that. But spiritually, you're part of that same process, only one that doesn't end in physical and ultimately spiritual death. You become part of a process in which God gives eternal life to another person that you'll live with and know to the ages, forever and ever. They'll never die because they share Jesus' new life. 1 Peter 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again to a new and living hope. That's what happens when we share the gospel. Someone gains new life. There's a new life that didn't exist before. Romans 5.17, actually I'll just leave that to you to read later, but 5.17-19 through 19 is more of the language from Paul in which he talks about in Adam you get this, in Adam you get death, in Adam you get sin, in Adam you get unrighteousness, in Christ you get life, you get righteousness, and it's all tied to which man you're connected to. I think they say this in children's Sunday school classes, but it's profound. If you're born once, you'll die twice. If your natural birth is your only birth, you'll die physically and one day you'll die spiritually when you're put out of God's presence forever. But if you're born twice, you'll only die once. Because if you have a second, a spiritual genesis, a spiritual renewal, a new life, you may die physically, but Jesus says you won't really die at all. You'll never die again because you're united with Christ. He's your new Adam and his life never ends. He gives, he says, eternal life. Life to the ages can't end. It's like his. So if you're born twice, you only die once. That's profound. The last point too, Adam and Eve were put in the perfect garden as God's rulers. And they were meant to rule over this world from the garden. They would have started in the garden and they would have worked out from there. And it's neat that in that picture... As perfect as all the earth was, the Garden of Eden was just a small part of it. Garden of Eden, a small part of that initial creation. But what is Jesus heading to? If he's the second Adam, does God have a garden for him and a world for him to rule and reign over? You know, if you get to the end of the Bible, you see that's exactly what God describes. Starts in Revelation 19, but let me read a couple passages out of Revelation 21 and 22. John the Apostle says, I saw a new heaven and new earth. The first heaven and first earth have passed away. Everything that was tainted by death, John says, in the future, it's gone. It's not here. It's all gone. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the bride of Christ. Scripture's clear here. Revelation 19 through 22. The church, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They'll be His people. God Himself will be among them. Do you remember back in Genesis 3 that it says God walked in the garden in the cool of the day? Now, God wasn't face-to-face fellowship with Adam and Eve every moment, but He did have face-to-face fellowship in the garden occasionally. Well, here, God now tabernacles with us. This means God's temple is with us. He's with us. We're with Him. We're in fellowship with Him better than Adam and Eve had in that original garden. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death. No more mourning. No crying. No pain. The first things have passed away. They're all gone. Everything connected to this earth, it's gone. So what's the new Eden or the new heaven and new earth look like? 
Revelation 22, John says, there's a river of life, clear as crystal. It comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So you, you get inside this city and there's a throne. And from the throne, there's a river coming, clear as crystal, and it's a river of life. And you remember in Genesis in the garden, there's a, a tree of life that God forbids Adam to get to. But here, there's not one tree, there's trees of life on both sides of this river. And it yields fruit every month and there's no more curse. And they'll see His face, they'll have His name. There's no sun because God Himself shines, provides all the illumination needed in this new place. And instead of this being like the original creation, Eden's a small part of the larger thing, well now... The whole thing is a garden. That's what God's describing here, isn't it? The new heaven and the new earth. The whole thing's a garden. The Garden of Eden has expanded, as it were. And Jesus, with His Eve, with His complementary other, is ruling over God's new heaven and new earth. When you read about Adam and Eve in the garden, ultimately, this is where God wants to get us. This is not going to end with Adam and Eve and their death. And their banishment from the garden. God says, I'm going to redeem it all. Adam and Eve, they're a picture. But this is where you're going to end up. New heaven, new earth, ruled by the ultimate final Adam. His complementary other Eve. And all their spiritual children. God is populating heaven now. When you and I share the gospel with others. And they become saved in Christ also. <clears throat> so what? You know, if all this is true... Go home and read your Bible, and you can disagree with me on any of this if you want. We'll talk about it, but go home and read your Bible. So what? The first thing, I assume in any group, and especially especially perhaps in church, that some of us here this morning, we aren't saved. We only know Adam as our father. We don't know Christ as our Savior. And if that's you, I would just appeal to you, God has something better than death in mind for you. And to hear that we're deficient because of who and what we are. This is not insulting, this is liberating. And to hear that God's a God of perfect, holy justice and judgment, that's not condemning because that same God is the one who provides a way out through Himself in that second Adam and His bloody wounded side. So the first thing I'd say is just get saved. Get a second birth. Get a new Adam. Get a new start to your life. Choose life instead of death. Jesus instead of just Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says this, In Adam, all die. No question. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. By the way, on this, I've, I've talked to people that have been part of this church for years who when I sat down and had a one-to-one -one conversation, I realized they weren't Christians and they thought they were. And in part it was because they were good moral people and they went to church. And I said to them charitably and clearly as I could, what you believe is not the gospel and if that's what you believe, you're not saved. You're not a Christian. And that's serious. God has no grandchildren. There's no generation. There's no genealogical table for Jesus. There's just one generation. You're in it or you're not. And it doesn't matter if your parents are Christians. It doesn't matter if you go to church. It doesn't matter if you look good on the outside. It doesn't matter if you're moral. It doesn't matter if you're a nice person. 
None of that makes any difference whatsoever. If Adam is your only parent, you're dead spiritually and you'll stay dead forever. So the first thing is, get a new birth. That's what Jesus offers in himself. His blood covers our sin. The other is this, and this is something we'll talk about more later when we get to Genesis 14, but when you feel tempted, Jesus was tempted. And he knows what it feels like. And he has been successful facing temptation. And he invites us to come to him in our times of need. When we face temptation, go to Christ. He's the one who knows how to get through that. Pray. Hebrews 4 says you can go to his throne. He'll give you grace and help in your time of need because he knows what that feels like. And all of us face temptation and we all sin in many ways. When you feel tempted, go to Christ. Many of us, I think, go through life with a certain kind of frustration and it's related to something like this. Um, I want to be more important. I want to be more influential. I want to be better looking. I want to be more successful in this way or that way. Because if I am, I'll feel better about myself. I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven, I know that, that's all good, but Lord, I still want to be more important than I am. I think one of the liberating things about this story and seeing Jesus as the second Adam is this. Jesus is the hero, I'm not. I'm part of the damsel in distress in this story, so are you. I don't have to be the hero. I'm not called to be the hero. I don't find fulfillment in being the hero. I get to be part of the complementary other. I fulfill a supportive role, and so do you. Well, that liberates me. You know what? We're significant as we are. God's placed us in the body. This is 1 Corinthians 12. The Holy Spirit's put us right where He wants us, gifted us, called us. We're significant right where we are. We don't have to be the hero of God's story. We're significant by God's doing right where we're at, doing what He's fitted us to do. And be encouraged by this, the fact that you'll fully, finally, bear the second Adam's image. You know, if you go along any time as a Christian at all, the more you grow as a Christian, there's sort of this confounding thing that happens. People might look at you and they say, man, he's, he's so much more mature than he was. She has grown so much in the Lord over the last few years. And... Yet you look inside and you feel like, you know what, I feel more sinful now than I did three years ago. Why is that? Well, it's because we are growing spiritually. But that means we can see more of the sin in our life. So the truth is, in our still embracing our fallen humanity, the closer we grow to Christ now, growing His likeness, the more fully we see our own sin. It's depressing. It's discouraging. But then I'm reminded, 1 John 3, 2, our future appearance, we we have no idea what we're going to look like in the future. Isn't that great? It's going to be so glorious, we we have no idea. 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, another good text for you to read when you go home, that talks about the future won't look like what we are now. But guys, one day there will be no downside to our humanity. We'll share Jesus' new Adam status fully will be like Him. There will be none of that old Adam life left in us. It will be all new. It will be glorious. We'll be glad for it. And the last point is this. John says this at the end of Revelation. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. You know, the more you know Christ, the more you want to say, Jesus, would you come? Could we get this thing going now, sooner instead of later? 
Could we have the marriage supper of the Lamb? Could we get going in that new heavens and new earth? Lord Jesus, would you come? That's what the Spirit says. That's what Jesus' bride says. That's what we should say too. Father, thanks that you have laid out so fully for us in your book these road signs to show us your Son, the one in whom you're so fully delighted. Lord, the, the only one ultimately that we can be fully delighted in as well. Father, would you open our eyes to see Christ? Lord, would you open our eyes perhaps to see Him as a Savior for the first time this morning? And as those in the church, Lord, would you give us a heart to love and serve Him till we see Him face to face? Amen.